are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Jonah chapter 2, I give you warm regards from many uh, partnering brothers and sisters uh, at Calvary Bible Church. I was there this morning uh, preaching for them. Uh, They were eager to hear the word, and uh, I know you are as well. Uh, but they send from from many 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 people uh, their warm regards. So it's funny. It's it's a little bit like um, going back in time, but it's like the best version. It's like the best version of it. It's like these. You look out and you see like people that you love, and you're like, I love them, and I love them, and I love them, and you're like, I have so many people that I love, and you're just reminded of the goodness of the Lord in that way. And it's just like it's the best thing ever. So, um, yeah, if you have it, hey, you guys have free Sunday mornings. You have nothing else you're doing. So go get a, go get a blessing. Go there and worship with our brothers and sisters. That'd be my, that would be my plea to you. All right, that's free. That's bonus. Man, I, I will say this to you, uh, and I'm glad we sang it is, oh, how good it is. Um, it, I, I was thinking this on the way in. I was like, I love preaching in other places just because I love preaching, but there's nothing like preaching to Good Shepherd Bible Church. I just like I love that most. I love that of all things because I feel like these are my people. Like these are this is my this is my family. Like these are my my bestest of friends. These are my family. I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm encouraged by your presence. And then to seeing what we sang, I'm like oh how good it is to be with God's people. So and I get to do it twice. That's awesome. All right, cool. All right. Last week we began a series in Jonah on why God's mercy or the reality of God's mercy never letting us go. As Quentin already reminded us, we cannot sin or exist outside of the coverage or the plan of God's really, truly suffocating mercy, his drowning mercy. We looked last week how everything in the book of Jonah is big. It's almost... It almost feels fake in how big, and I, I hope even as we were reading through that and that theme kind of came out, I hope you were kind of blown away. It's like, yeah, this does feel like larger than life. It almost feels like the best kind of movie uh, out there. It just feels like everything's super exaggerated, uh, and yet it's all true. I, I hope you were able to see that and kind of uh, took joy in that. I, I find it fascinating, and we're not, we're not quite done with that, especially in chapter three and four. Uh, there are more giant things to see. We have a giant city, we have a giant storm, we have a giant whale, and we have even larger than anything is God's giant mercy, which covers it all. Uh, Psalm 145, Quentin, you're on fire today. Psalm 145, it was great. The God's mercy is over, I love that, is over all. It's beautiful. But the craziness is seen in God's intervention in this story, and it makes me believe that God's interactions with us are far from ordinary and often more ridiculous than we give him credit for, yet full of mercy and great salvation. I hope this week you saw something crazy this week, saw something crazy. And by that, I really just mean you saw the hand of God operating in your life in profound ways, and you saw that as being really big, just like Jonah was just doing his normal profiting gig. God moved in his life, God spoke into his life, and big things happened. I pray that you were able to see things like that last week. And if not, look for them this week. Again, I think God is at work in ordinary interactions to bring to us far from ordinary experiences of his mercy and his salvation. Be on the lookout. But what we began to see is that God's mission is for mercy. He's not concerned with people getting what they deserve. He has intervened into our world precisely so that they would not get what we deserve. 
Remember this from Romans 3, that he is both just and justifier of the ones who trust in Jesus. Yes, God is at work to bring justice for those who will not receive his mercy, but his mission is for you to receive the mercy he has given. And so the big question is, and the big question for Jonah is, are you on the same mission? Are you on the mission that God has in this world of what he is doing in this world? And don't forget, his mission is mercy. This was ultimately Jonah's commissioning. Go proclaim my mercy. Go be an agent of my mercy. And Jonah began to run. The question about your and my rebellion has really not much to do about particulars of morality. It has more to do with this mercy mission. Let me say that again. The question about your rebellion is primarily about the mercy of mission, not just moral obedience. Are you on this mission of proclaiming God's mercy? God's provision of mercy in Jesus is seen all throughout the book of Jonah. And of course, we saw just a little bit last week. Remember, just as even Jonah, the prophet of God, the one who was to speak for God, he ran from God and went down and down and down. So we see in the humility of our own Savior who was crucified for our sins, who took our sins upon himself. Even in Philippians 5, we see this movement of Jesus to go down and down and down for our sake. So last week we took a look at what's known uh, as, you're, as you're studying this book and reading this book. It's called Jonah's Flight, and it's not like the first airplane ride. It's like his, his fleeing away from the Lord. It's known as his flight. All right? So we'll, I might refer it to as Jonah's Flight from here on out, and then you can know what I'm saying. So last week we looked at Jonah's flight. Today we look at Jonah's prayer. We're going to read this chapter, but before we do, I want to prepare you for the reading by noticing two big things that I think leap off the page as you read. And I understand that it's not always helpful for me to like set up your reading. It's not always helpful, but I think in this case it is. I want you to, number one, see something that there is something bigger than Jonah being swallowed by a fish. Okay, uh, maybe even in this chapter, you almost might forget where Jonah is located um, in an unimaginable spot. I mean, again, talking about the ridiculousness of this book in a ridiculous place inside the belly of the whale. And you're like, well, what does that look like? I don't know. I've never been there. So I don't I don't know. You can only use your imagination. There's a couple descriptions here. Uh, some of them kind of seem poetic. Um, but also you can kind of get a, a general sense of how he feels about his current situation. But these aren't, these aren't what you're not going to get is like his daily journals, right? Like day one, I looked up and behold, I see the rib cage of this giant beast. That's not, that's not what you get. So you almost have to remember he's being digested, okay, if that helps you. But in all of this trauma, what you do hear out of Jonah is that he recognizes the bigness of his relationship with God. Even bigger than being swallowed by a fish, you recognize that Jonah understands the biggest thing going on in his heart and world is not that he's being digested, but that he has a relationship issue with God. It's amazing. You will hear that in his prayer. The second thing I want you to hear and just kind of be aware of poetically is the structure of the prayer and the kind of a, I, I think this book is way more um, a, a literary wonder, a literary masterpiece than we give it credit for. And I think it's seen, some of that is seen in, in this prayer. This, the way that Jonah is praying, uh, it almost sounds like waves. It sounds like waves. And if you, if you listen even, I'll try, to, I'll try to read it with a little bit of an inflection. But you'll see his, I'm in trouble, but God rescues I have a problem, but God delights to save. It's like this, and you'll hear these kind of, and you'll hear it all throughout the prayer. You'll just hear these waves, almost like he's just like going back and forth, rocking in a boat. Uh, it's very beautiful and very poetic. It's worth just hearing out. And it's also worth, as we understand this poetic prayer, it helps give some of the interpretation of the prayer as well. You see these contrasting uh, things that Jonah is wrestling with. Ultimately, I think what you'll see in this prayer 
is that Jonah struggles with his own desire for self-preservation versus what he knows to be true about God. You'll hear Jonah's struggles with his own self-preservation. We might even say his own clinging on to his own self-righteousness, hanging on to the very last couple breaths of his old Adam self and the realities of who God is and what he delights to do. And so you hear these in waves formed. You kind of hear the, the swells of these realities going back and forth in his mind. Let's go ahead and read Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. It's amazing to see, we've entitled this sermon series, When God's Mercy Will Not Let You Go. And it's amazing to see that that's really comprehensively true in Jonah's life. Literally, there's no place where he could go where God's presence would not be found in his life or that God's reach would not be heard or his voice would not be heard in his life. It reminds me of Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite books or one of my, one of my favorite psalms in all of the Bible. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This is, on the, just the first glance, a beautiful theological reminder that God is with you. God is present and working in your life. There's nowhere where you can run where his presence can't reach you and find you. And for some of you, that might, found, that might be annoying or maybe even nagging, but I promise when you understand the merciful heart of our Savior, I think you'll find that to be a very soft pillow for your heart to lie on. Some of you in recent days have depended on that. For some of you have lived in darkness this week. And you've needed the light of Jesus to shine in your light. And he was there. He was faithful. Some of you remained in darkness. Maybe even it feels today you showed up in darkness. It's a friendly reminder that even though you might not see a lot of light, God's presence is still there in the darkness. It's as if it is light to him. He sees you. It's not ultimately about your ability to fully see God, but it's, your, it's his ability to remember and see you. This is the beauty of Jonah, that no matter how far he went, God followed. God went down as far as Jonah would go down. There is some good and some bad in Jonah's prayer. I didn't read this with too much inflection or too much sarcasm, but there is plenty of, oh, brother, when it comes to reading Jonah's prayer. I don't know if you missed some of it. I will try to inflect a little bit more of the, oh, brotherness as we read it, as we uh, go back through it. But there's a reality to Jonah's prayer that is a present reality for you and me, and that is Jonah is a very solid mixed bag. Or as my dad likes to say, he has his feet firmly planted in the middle of the air. That is how Jonah is. We've talked about this reality, that in this stage in our own salvation history, 
we are really stuck between two realities. We are stuck between the reality of all that God has promised us to be in Jesus versus the reality of our flesh still clinging on to us here and now. It's the reason why you still struggle like you struggle. It's the reason we constantly have to remind ourselves of the realities of the gospel because we are so quick to forget. We are this simultaneous sinner and saint as we go throughout our entire life. And you hear this in Jonah's prayer. You hear a lot of really good and powerful things, but you hear a lot of things where knowing what we know of Jonah's mission and what God had called him to in his rebellion, you hear that and you're like, you don't believe a word you're saying, do you? And isn't that like us? A lot of times we come to church, we read our Bibles, we act as if like, yes, I'm giving myself all to this, you know, I surrender all, all to him I owe. And then the reality is like we go home and we're just a mixed bag. It's like you know, our kids, our family, you know, the people who really know us, look at us. It's like, you don't really believe that, do you? And if we were to be honest with them and if they were to be completely honest with us, which thank God they're not always that honest. They're not challenging us every time we well, maybe they are. Maybe you live in that home. I'm sorry if you do. You shouldn't live in that. No, you should live in that home. I don't know what I'm saying, but you know what I'm saying. I'm sorry for you if that's your reality. But the truth is. We are a mixed bag. We say one thing and we act a different way. And that's not to justify any sort of sinful course of action or sinful thought patterns. It's never to justify it, but it is to say the reality that we are stuck between the times just like Jonah of what we have and yet what we've yet to receive, of yet the promises of God fixed outside of ourselves and the still ongoing process of redemption going on on the inside of ourselves. All of those things are real, and you'll hear that in Jonah. He's a walking contradiction. Let's look at a couple things that kind of point this out. We'll try to reread the prayer a little bit, and I'll just kind of go over things that seem to be giant contradictions according to some of this story. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. All of that would be relatively true and good. Then he gets to verse 3, and he says, For you cast me into the deep. Like, okay, come on. All right. Hang on here for just a second. Don't don't pin this all on God's sovereignty, which again, Jonah, Jonah knows too much. He's a little too smart for his own good. Is it wrong to say that God threw him into the sea? Well, let's go back. What did God do to get him thrown overboard? Remember that visual, like that that great pause of him being thrown overboard, and that's like where the, the scene cuts, right? And Jonah's thinking, like, what mess did I get myself into? How did he get to that very moment? Well, the reality is, in the most crazy of events, there's this giant storm. There's waves crashing in onto the boat. And all of a sudden, they're jettisoning all sorts of cargo. And they recognize, this is is a story of God. This This is something God's up to. Let's roll dice to figure out who is God mad at. And they roll dice when... You can imagine the chaos in the scene surrounding waves and ship and cargo being thrown over, all these things happening, and the lot falls on Jonah, and all of a sudden, in God's sovereign plan, Jonah is selected. And they say, what are you doing? Who are you? Well, I'm a Hebrew. I actually fear the Lord. Like, no, you don't. What are you doing? You're running away. He's like, well, if you throw me overboard, this will all go well for you. And they chuck him overboard. And certainly, in God's sovereignty, we can see the hand of God, can't we? But who's to blame for Jonah being thrown overboard? If we're pinning fault, if we're doing the blame game, Jonah should have at least had the honesty and integrity to say, I got myself thrown overboard, which would have been right to say. It was my fault. But he pins it on the sovereignty of God, this mixed bag of truth, and yet not a full confession, not an outright honest confession. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Oh, brother, get out of here, dude. I am driven away. He's like this passive kind of like wanderer, and God is just like guiding him and pushing him. He's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just walking away. I don't know, God. I want to follow you, but I just... Seemingly can't get around to doing that right now. Oh, your hands, you've driven me away. Oh, no, my friend. He ran. He ran in the exact opposite direction, got on a boat going the exact opposite way, and he chose 
the path of going down. He did it as far as he could to hide away from God's presence, from his hand. Jonah knew exactly what he was doing. Yet he finds some level of comfort, and again, it's hard to know if this is confession or if this is just good Bible knowledge. He says, yet again shall I look upon your holy temples. There was some aspect of hope he was clinging on to. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Certainly he would have every reason to be scared or nervous at this moment. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And finally you're like, okay, all right. Jonah might be on this path back. He might be doing okay. He sees God's hand to rescue, and that's God's ultimate plan. Okay, I like this. Good job, Jonah. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. But you know, God, I have some really things, I got some things I'd like to bring up to you, God. You remember those sailors? You remember how they were praying to all sorts of gods and they were doing crazy things like, you know, waving like medallions and like doing weird prayers and like doing all the things to try to catch any sort of god out there for rescue. You know those idolaters, you know, like I'm just thinking they should probably pay. Come on, Jonah. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Ugh. If those sailors only knew how holy and righteous you are. Man, if they knew it like I knew it, that'd be great. But I, with a with voice of thanksgiving, I, with a great heart of gratitude for the Lord in worship, I am the Hebrew of Hebrews, I fear the Lord, I will worship, I will make vows, and then this great theological statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. Which again, is an amazing statement. But it's really hard to hear from a guy like Jonah right now. It's really difficult for me to really hear that well. I don't know about you. I think there's two things that are helpful about this prayer, maybe even a little um, pointed for us. Oh, there's that. Don't forget that. Nothing is bigger than God's plan in Christ to show you his mercy. God's mercy will not let you go. It's a good phrase. Good slide. All right. Number one, Jonah knew his Bible but it wasn't good enough. <coughs> Jonah knew his Bible. And this verse, this, this prayer, if you study it out, it is crazy. Um, almost all of it is cross-referenced. In fact, if you have a reference Bible, you can see just about every line has a little tiny letter next to it, referencing some part of the Psalms, some part of Israel's history. It's pretty astounding. Um, really, actually, these this, this, there's two passages in this prayer. It's kind of broken up into two different chunks. The, these two passages could literally almost be carbon copied from two particular psalms. Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6, and Psalm 69. I'm going to read a portion of these, uh, of these psalms, and you just listen and see if it just sinks in the language and, and the flow of Jonah's prayer. Psalm 18, 4 through 6. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. It's like literally a carbon copy. Psalm 69, save me, O God, from the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. It's almost as if it was written by Jonah himself. It's crazy. See, Jonah knew his Bible And yet there was still something about the mercy of God that he was not internalizing. Jonah could quote scripture. Jonah could quote scripture in a way that led to one of the most beautiful prayers that we have recorded in our Bibles. It's pretty astounding. There are many saints, no doubt, who have used this same prayer in their own life for their own whatever they're going through, whatever deep waters that they are going through. 
And yet we still find Jonah's not done rebelling from God's mercy mission. He's not done. He still has some rebellion left in the tank. And yet we see this beautiful example of biblical inscripturated prayer. And what are we to learn from that? What are we to draw from that? This reality that that just knowing your Bible doesn't save you. Just knowing your Bible, having it memorized, even like in one sense, like that being the vocabulary and the language in which you speak, even if it shapes you back in a way that like, like rolls off the tongue easily for you, even in reference to God, you understand that there was still something about God's mercy that Jonah was still missing. And yet, this is so beautiful, isn't it? Like any of us, I don't think if we knew Jonah, we would, we would be totally duped. We'd be like, man, are you a prophet? Wow, I mean, that is, you know your Bible. That is great. And we would not be able to know, this dude's on the run. This dude still has some some rebellion left in his tank. It's not enough. It reminds me of, of John 5. And, and I think we as church people need to be very cautious of all of our biblicism. All of our, all of our constant Bible, and it's not just talk and language, but it's almost our devotion to a Bible more than it is to the actual contents of what that Bible speaks of. And that's, that's what Jonah misses. And actually, that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees missed in Jesus' day. From the book of John, this is one of the most um, haunting words to religious people in John chapter 5. He's, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And as it is, excuse me, and it is they, those scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me in order that you may have life. Those are actual verses in your Bible. Astonishing. Jesus coming to the religious, saying, you guys have your Bibles memorized. And it's keeping you from me. It's keeping you from understanding me. See, the scriptures, they point to me. And you go to them because you think you have life in them, but it's they that if you really understood what the scriptures meant, you would see that they're pointing to me. And yet you won't come to me to find life. You go to them. And in the same way, you can see this in Jonah's life. He has the Bible. It's almost like, it's almost like a, a, a lucky rabbit's foot. But when he gets stuck in the whale, he can just be like, you know what? I do know Psalm 18. I do know Psalm 69. I wonder if I can just rub these lucky verses, and maybe that will spit me out. My friend, that's not how that works. That's not what saves. Knowing your Bible doesn't save you. Having the mercy of God applied to you, embracing, trusting in Jesus' mercy for you, my friends, that's what the scriptures are pointing to. Your need of salvation on the basis of Christ and Christ only. That is what the scriptures point to. Your need to trust in what Jesus has done for you, not in your ability to internalize all of Jesus' stuff. Does that make sense? And it's a little tricky. That's some, that's some deep-level religion stuff right there, to, to hear that difference. But just knowing your Bible isn't enough. The second thing, just knowing your theology isn't enough. This gets even trickier. This gets even harder. Because Jonah says things that could literally, you could write a gospel tract from, and people could come to the Lord hearing Jonah's understanding of salvation theology from this, from this prayer. And yet, you have to remember, this is Jonah who's on the run. This is the one who is in rebellion against the very mercy that God intends for him to receive. That's the state Jonah is in, and yet he's giving us the clearest form of uh, salvation theology you'll ever hear. He had the answers, but he didn't know the reality of the mercy that he needed. All the way there in uh, verse 9, he says, he ends with this unbelievable phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. You've probably even heard that. Maybe you've seen it on some sort of slogan or maybe even as a title for sermon series in Jonah. Absolutely, 100%. We would all clap and cheer. We'd love it. It's great. Salvation does belong to the Lord. What a beautiful 
um, theological phrase to help us to understand that God is finally and sufficiently sovereign over all of salvation. It's, it's beautiful. If you are going to be saved, my friend, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with what you can offer, what you can do, your record, your past record, your ability to achieve. It has everything to do with what God has done. Salvation belongs from start to finish to him. It's beautiful. It doesn't even have much to do with your own personal decision to follow him. Now, yes, that's a, that's a part of it, but that's not the thing that saves you. Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago in an empty tomb, that's what saves you. Salvation belongs wholly to the Lord. It's firmly fixed in what he's able to do for you. It's beautiful. And yet Jonah's on the run from it. This is a warning for us, especially as I wouldn't, I wouldn't call ourselves, I wouldn't even call myself a Calvinist, but people probably refer to us in the Reformed camp, just very generally speaking, even if you've never considered yourself being labeled that way. Again, I don't consider myself labeled that way uh, personally. Like I feel no need to be labeled that way. But I've had other people label me as that way because I hold to particular doctrines, specifically ones that relate to God's sovereignty over salvation. And so you get a little bit pigeonholed. And again, our church has been pigeonholed. So if you're a part of our church, you're being pigeonholed. Just know that that's out there. And it's okay. Jesus loves you. You're more than the sum of who pigeonholes you and into what kind of camp. Okay. But the reality is, like, we champion these, these things. And yet, I know in my own heart, I often run from the mercy of God. I often act as if I don't need God's mercy today. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Again, theology, which we do champion theology. We have a seriousness about what we believe and why we believe it. Okay? But the reality is that that in and of itself, just having firm lines and firm boundaries on clear theological points, more than others, fine, whatever, none of that stuff actually does the job of saving. None of that stuff is the core of what actually gets around to saving us. We can believe these truths and yet still be on the run from God's mercy mission, both towards us and through us. We can be on the run. And this was Jonah. He quotes Psalm 3.8. Again, he knew his Bible. He knew his theology. He knew what he was saying. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Exact same quote from one of, one of the Psalms early on. Reminds me a lot of Jesus' sayings. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This was Jonah's plight. It's an honoring with the lips. It's saying all the right things. It's doing all the right things. It's having clear theology. It's understanding our Bible. I mean, you could assume Jonah went to graduate school, got some sort of master's degree in profiting education. I don't know. I don't know. Probably had his devotions every day, and yet he's on the run. Ultimately, we'll see that Jonah struggles with his own desire for self-preservation versus the reality of what he knows to be true about God's mercy. And this is the rub of our lives. What is actually doing the job of saving us? And you might be using your right theology, and you might be using your own Bible knowledge as part of the equation to justify your rebellion. But my friends, you can't outrun the mercy of God. You can't outsin the mercy of God. The entire irony and probably the biggest point of this entire chapter in this prayer is that the very mercy that Jonah despised in chapter 1 is the very mercy that he needs in chapter 2. Do you hear that? Remember in chapter 4, we get a little bit of a sneak peek. Why did he run? He didn't run because he was scared. He didn't run merely because he was being disobedient or just wanted a different duty. He ran because he knew God would be merciful and save Ninevites. He knew that God's mission was mercy. And didn't want any part of that. So he ran. And now we see that Jonah needs what the Ninevites need. And what is he crying out for? Mercy. In a half-hearted way, in a half-believing kind of way, in a kind of, I need this, but I'm also still rebelling because I really don't like this whole idea anyway. I want it for me, but I don't want it for them. So if God, if you could save me, that would be great. Also, don't, don't forget those idolatrous people. They're pretty bad. These half-hearted way, he wants mercy, or he wants judgment for others. 
The ultimate reality for why God ended up saving Jonah was not because of his right theology. It wasn't because of his right uh, biblicism. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with God still was committed to his mission for mercy. And if you read the rest of the book, you find that Jonah was drugged through Nineveh by the sovereign hand of God. He preached a lousy sermon half-heartedly, and God still saves these people. God was going to save the Ninevites. That's why Jonah got spat out. Not because Jonah had it right, not because Jonah got his heart all right. God delighted to save Ninevites, and he was going to use Jonah to, use, to do it. My friend, do you understand that you are a part of God's mercy mission? You have a summons like Jonah has. Go and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples. That is your commissioning. You've been called to go find a proverbial Ninevite and go make him into a disciple. That's what you have been called to. I'm not making this up. This is actually in Matthew 28, 19. You have a summons of the Lord. And the reality is you either are submitting your heart to the mercy of God, which means, like Jonah, you are first and foremost to receive that mercy for you first, not to think of Ninevites first, but to think of you and the need for mercy that you have first so that your heart might be transformed by that mercy to go take it towards people who also need mercy, who are just as bad as you are. Do you, do you see that? Do you hear that? You have a summons. And we know the end of the story, don't we? Just like we know the end of the story, God used Jonah to save Ninevites. Do you understand that we will get to the end of our story and we will stand before God and there will be people from all tribes and all tongues and nations. They will be gathered around the throne and God will have used people like you and like me to save people for that day. That is his mercy mission and he intends to use you. The question is, are you on board that mission? And I'm not asking whether or not you're going to be successful because I'm telling you that's the end of the story. We will be successful. You will be successful. Okay, God will use you in his disciple-making journey if you are his. You are his, so he will use you. I'm confident. The question is, what is your heart's disposition towards that mercy? Are you like Jonah still in rebellion against his mercy mission? Or is your heart soft to receive his mercy for yourself and then share it with others? Do you, do you see that? God in his sovereign mission, the mission goes forward. So I'm not asking you, are you going to be successful? I'm not asking you that question. In God's sovereignty, salvation belongs to the Lord. You're going to be successful. The question is, where is your heart in relation to that mission? God has a ministry of mercy to give to Jonah, and God has a mercy of ministry to give to you in the same way. I want to contrast this reality of Jonah's rebellion with what we see in the Apostle Paul, because Paul lays out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 a clear presentation of ministry. By the way, you're in ministry. Again, you're on mission. God's called you to a very successful mission. You are all in ministry. You are. Just like I'm in ministry, you're in ministry. My mission is to equip you for your ministry. Okay, that's my job. I'm not even doing real ministry. You're doing real ministry. I'm helping you out do your real ministry. See that? Okay, feel me? Okay, I'm not doing ministry. I'm out. <laughs> no. But listen, listen, to, listen to Paul, okay? And then contrast this with Jonah's rebellion. And again, Jonah's facing life and death. Okay, he is. He's in the throes. Listen to how Paul talks about his life and death ministry with Jonah's life and death ministry. And I want you to do a little bit of contrast, okay? Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, and we can stop there. We can stop there and be like, that's the difference. That's the difference. Jonah didn't want mercy. And so he didn't want to go to ministry. Paul's like, I want mercy. I'm in ministry. I have this ministry by or according to the mercy of God. I want that stuff. I'm in. Ministry is mercy. Ministry is how we are saved. Big theological points, crazy, but you can debate Paul on that. We do not lose heart. Verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
And even if our gospel is veiled, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the exact opposite of Jonah's prayer. Jonah wants his own life and death for other people. And Paul's like, I don't care if I die. I'm good. But I do care about your life. Mercy is that flip. Submission to the mercy of God is that flip. allows you to do that. If you're embracing the realities of God's mercy for you, it allows then for you to then minister mercy to other people in a way that reflects Jesus, in a way that spreads the kingdom in this glorious way, right? And benefits others. Whereas Jonah, in his self-preservation status, God, if you just saved my life, that'd be great. And if I get out of here, boy, I'm going to talk to those sailors, and they are going to know. You mean business, God. Right? I get to the Ninevites. I'm going to tell them what's up. 40 days, you're going to burn. Peace. I'm out. That was, that was Jonah's heart in self-preservation mode. And as we'll see, it doesn't work out too well. But yet, at the same time, it's okay. God's got it. His, his mercy still, still rules, still reigns, still goes. Where are you? I, I was speaking with a pastor, um, just my own pastoral concerns for us, for you guys. And um, he actually asked me to share it with you guys. And I said, well, it doesn't really relate to this particular sermon in this particular area that I was talking to him about pastoral concern I have. Um, so I'm not going to share that. But I will share maybe an overarching thing that I just feel like does relate to what's going on here. Um, I, I am burdened that we as a people know how to rest in Jesus. That we know how to rest in Jesus. And, and here's what this looks like in Jonah's life. Okay, again, maybe I should just ask this question. How much of our own spirituality is simply because we're not at rest in the mercy of Jesus? Let me explain. Chapter 2 of Jonah is completely unnecessary. It shouldn't be in our Bible. We shouldn't have this account. We shouldn't have Jonah's prayer. We shouldn't have Jonah's repentance. We shouldn't have to wade through his, his whatever kind of conundrum he's stuck in. We shouldn't have any of that. What should we have? Chapter 3, and then it should be like, and he happily, in his own heart, went to Nineveh, preached a great sermon because he knew who Jesus was, everybody got saved, and then the sun set, and it was very beautiful. That's what we should have. But we don't. We have chapter 2. And we're like, oh, look at Jonah's piety. Ah, oh, Jonah, you know that Jonah guy? He knew how to pray. He knew how to pray. And I'm like, no, chapter 2 is unnecessary. And I wonder about us. I wonder about me. How much of my own spirituality is because I simply can't trust in Jesus' mercy enough to receive it and then to pass it along? And if I would do that, I wouldn't be, and this is probably going to sound like gaslighting. Don't let me gaslight you. Of course, I don't really know what that means anymore because everyone uses that for everything. But at the same time, like a lot, of, a lot of times, if we just rested in Jesus, we wouldn't be stuck in the kind of conundrum we're stuck in 
that we'd have to offer these sanctimonious, deeply theological, richly God-save-me kind of prayers. In other words, our lives are so chaotic and it brings more spiritual upheaval because of the spiritual chaos. And it's almost like if we just trusted Jesus's mercy, we'd be okay. We'd be all right. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't need chapter two. We'd be, and everybody heard about Jesus and it was great. But a lot of us were like, you know, I'm really struggling to pray today. And it's like, again, not that you shouldn't be praying or not that you can't pray, but like, what about just resting in Jesus? Then you wouldn't feel all the guilt and shame you have, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you could just be content to allow Jesus to cover your sins. You wouldn't be so sanctimoniously trying to cover your own. I don't know. I, I just, one of my pastoral concerns is that, like, like, if we just had, you know what, we just need to be, if we just had, if we were just better dads, that would just be awesome. Then I'd be better. Or if we would just be, you know, we could just be better moms, that'd be great. If I could just be a better student, or if I just prayed more. And again, all of these things are wonderful. No, I'm not arguing with any of those things. But honestly, like, you know, honestly, what I just need, what do my kids need? Do they need a strong dad? Maybe, kind of, sure. That's not a bad thing. But they need to see me dependent on the mercy of Jesus. Does that make sense? What if, what if they, they saw a dad that said, like, you know, I, I really, man, my heart says run, but I know who Jesus is. And his mission is mercy. And, I, you know, I struggle with wanting these people to get what they deserve, but yet I know what I've deserved. And I don't know, buddy, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm wrestling. I don't, I don't know really how to pray for this moment. But I'm going to trust the mercy of Jesus. I'm going to, we're going to be obedient. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go share the gospel today. We're going to go share the gospel with these people. We're going to love these people. We're going to forgive them. We're going to pray for these people. This is like simple trusting in the mercy of Jesus. I, I don't know. Like I, I do have a particular situation. I'll save that for another sermon. But at the same time, I do have a heart for us that we're so spiritually chaotic. And I wonder if the chaos is just this overflow because in the first place, we have a very hard time just trusting in the mercy of Jesus in the first place. Does that make sense? And like Jonah, God didn't give him something really hard to do. He didn't go say, you know what, go be a better dad today. He didn't say that. He said, you know what that mercy is like, right, Jonah? All right, Ninevites, go. And God knew, I mean, like, it was only, gonna, it was only and always going to take just one simple sermon. He could have just opened his mouth and been like, 40 days, you're all going to hell which is exactly what he did, and God still saved him, right? Like, simple obedience. That's what he's called you to do today. It's like, what about, what about you? What, are you? what are you spiritually going for, working for, that's actually just a result of your inability to simply just allow Jesus to be Jesus for you? And I actually find you'll have more things to do. I, I think you'll be busy, because again, I think you're on a mission. I think you have some, some mission to be about. So God hasn't left you just to sit on your couch. It's never been a thing. Don't, don't let Satan fool you into thinking that's what Christianity is. It's not. But he's called you to a mission. So actually, maybe that means instead of like trying to like read your Bible and be the best dad, maybe just like take your kids to community group. Trust in the mercy of Jesus. You say, that's hard. That's messy. I know. But you have the mercy of God to talk about. God loves messy people because that's all that there are to love. So go, go love them. Go be messy with them. Go share your mess. Go talk about how Jesus is redeeming your mess. Talk about one thing that you champion his forgiveness in the light of your mess in. What's one thing that you are most happy about that Jesus forgave? Take that. You know what? I think, like, I think that's what it means to be a strong dad. I think that's what it means to be a good mom. I think that's what it means to be a good person in the workplace. It's just to trust the mercy of Jesus and live on that mercy mission. It's not simple. It's not rocket science. And like Jonah, maybe we wouldn't have to deal with chapter two. We just would have trusted the mercy of Jesus. I just want to share that with you guys, and, and that's certainly my heart. But also, also, I think it's also clear from God's word. If we had just been obedient to God's mercy mission, allowed his mercy to cover you, and then move in mercy towards other people, I think we'd have a different story. I'm thankful Jonah made a mess of his life because it helps me process God's mercy. I'm thankful for that. But that doesn't mean you have to make a mess. <laughs> You've already made a mess. That's all right. You can go talk about the mercy of God in your mess.
The mercy of God covers you. Wherever you are, however far you've gotten in your rebellion, however fast your flight has been, however dramatic, however ridiculous, however crazy, there's more mercy in God to forgive you for that, and to restore you, to heal you, and then to use you, because that's what he's promised to do, than you could ever imagine. Submit your heart to it. to the